The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I have something to talk to you guys about, or everyone. I have something to talk to everyone about. I always have to correct myself with everyone now. It's really important that we we address people as everyone, not guys, girls, just to be inclusive. But what I will say is, have you ever heard of something called Next Door? It is, it's a menagerie of um, of of fun for me because. There's always like, I always get on there at night, which is the perfect time when you've had like a glass of buttery Chardonnay, of course, on my end. And there's always somebody on there and they're saying something like, oh my God, there was a guy and he was walking down the street and he had dark skin and he was on my street. So there's always the Karens on there, right? And you're just like, what is wrong with you? And then there's the woman that's like, what kind of bird is this? I found this beautiful bird in my bird feeder and I don't know what it is. So there's like a whole, like there's a whole different dynamic going on in next door. And what I found is I'm not allowed to go on there anymore and comment because when I go on there, I'm usually drinking. So let's be real. I've had like maybe a glass of two of buttery Chardonnay. And then I become the person that will kind of like get into fights with people and so my husband's like, you are not allowed to go on next door anymore. But it's like hours and hours of humor for me. And I just find it fascinating. And my guest, John Stenzel is on right now. John, have you heard of next door? I have not. Oh, my 
my God. Okay, so where where do you live? I live in Ventura, California. Okay, so you have Nextdoor. I think Nextdoor is like a, it's an app. It's a, what it is, is it's a neighborhood app where whatever the zip code you're in, like, so for me, I live in the South Bay. There's always somebody on there that's like, um, do you know this person? And it's a picture of the person and they're like, they didn't, weren't picking up their dog's poop. So they're like, oh my God, I took a, per- a picture of this person at five in the morning in front of my house and they weren't picking up their dog's poop. Does anyone know who this is? So it's, I mean, you need to sign up first of all, because it is the most entertaining thing that I can ever tell you about. So I welcome you to the show and I'm going to start the show right now. I talk a lot about how much therapy saved my life and how lucky I am to have my amazing therapist, Dr. Nay. But not everybody can get an appointment with Dr. Nay. And I really wanted to break the stigma on getting help or asking for help. So that is why I partnered with a company called online-therapy.com. They have plans that start around $30 a week and you can get weekly therapy sessions for less than $50 a week. You can also get my 20% off code by going to my website, judgingmegan.com, and you go to the therapy tab. And if you click on the link at the bottom, you can get 20% off your first month. Hey, everyone. So we are lucky enough to have John Stenzel on the podcast today. Hi, John. Welcome. Morning, Megan. Thank you for having me today. I'm so excited to have you on. Um, I know that we're going to talk about some serious subjects. Uh, I know you, or I was introduced to you by my friend, Caroline Nadine Helsing, who is my friend that wrote her uh, her beautiful book, Unapologetic Tales of the Original Party Crasher, about her mom. And from what I understand, you are um, her husband's uncle, correct? Yes. Okay. Okay. So she's a really, um, I just need to always give her a shout out because her book is, I'm sure you've read it. It's just unbelievable. Oh, you're going to take it out right now. Where is my copy? Yeah, it's just, oh, guys, I, I know I've done a whole podcast with Caroline and I've talked about this book. It's a really, really beautiful book and just she's such an amazing writer. So I just wanted to, because we've connected through Caroline, I wanted to give her an additional shout out. Hi, Caroline. Love you. You're amazing. Um, So welcome, John. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Let's just start. From the very beginning, where where are you from? I know you're from Ventura or you live in Ventura now, but I'm going to just learn your story just like all of my listeners. So tell me about where you were born and where you grew up. Well, I'm a, I'm a local native guy, born in Santa Monica, raised in the San Fernando Valley, and I migrated out to Ventura County back in 1976. And most recently, about a year and a half ago, I sold my home in Camarillo and moved to this wonderful little marina at, at uh, it's called Portside Ventura Harbor. And I live literally at the marina. It's wonderful. Do you live on a boat? No, I live in an apartment and okay. uh, a brand new community. I was the eighth person moving in here and it has about 230 units. 
they have studios and one bedrooms and two bedrooms and three bedroom townhomes. And we have 130 boat slips. So a lot of our neighbors are buying boats and it's, it's an amazing place. I'm literally one block north, east and south of the water. Okay. I'm jealous because I love, I mean, for my listeners that don't live in California, Ventura, that area is just the most beautiful area. Um, Santa Barbara, all of those areas where, you know, I don't know what you think, John, but California has really changed. I've lived here for 20 plus years of my life. It's my home. I consider myself somebody that, I mean, I think I'm an Angelino at this point. And it's, it's such an incredible state. I'm sure you agree because you grew up here. And I'm hoping that it really, we start to kind of get things back to where we were and not to get political, but it, it's sad to see a lot of the things that have happened to our beautiful state. I don't know if you agree with me on that. I totally agree with you. You know, I grew up here and all my family's here. I've got tons of friends. Um, started surfing at the age of 10 years old in uh, Del Mar down in Santa Monica and I've been surfing pretty much all my life and, and uh, raised my son on the beach on a surfboard. And I just love it. You know, I've traveled just recently in the last year, I've traveled to about eight or nine different states just to see where else I might want to move. And I keep coming right back to here and say, I'm home. It's true. It's like not to go off on a tangent, but I, one of my best friends actually, uh, he was trying to figure out where he wanted to be and he moved out of state. And now he's like, California is my home. And it's just such a special place. Um, you know, I'm a beach girl too. I live in the Manhattan, uh, Redondo, Hermosa beach area. And, uh, I go on a walk every day and I look at the ocean and I just like, I, that's my time when I pray or I think about things and just, it's my happy place. So I just, I like, I love it here and I love that you're a surfer. So let's kind of get into growing up. So you grew up in Santa Monica uh-huh. and grew- tell me about like your, your early years. So um, uh, born in Santa Monica and my family lived there uh, until I was about four years old. And then the whole family picked up and moved to the San Fernando Valley. My dad worked in the film industry and um Originally, all the studios were over on the west side, <clears throat> but then every, everyone started gravitating and moving to uh, Studio City, Burbank, and uh, so every the, the whole studio industry kind of flocked with it. So we moved over to Studio City first, then we migrated to uh, um, Sherman Oaks, and then we moved all the way out to a little place called Walnut Acres, today known as Woodland Hills. And when we moved out there, it was Walnut Acres. It was just this about two square mile area, horse properties. And, and we could hike around and just enjoy the, the heck out of uh, the San Fernando Valley, the West Valley. It was a beautiful place. What did your dad do in the film industry? Well, he started off working in the props. And uh, 43 years later, he, he retired as an uh, art director. And he specialized in Western movies, <clears throat> all the Westerns. John Wayne was a good friend of our family. Um, he did all of John Wayne's movies and Barbara Stanwyck from Big Valley. We got Christmas presents from Barbara every year. And everyone said, oh, my gosh, 
that is so special. How, how did you do that? I'm going, well, why? They're our friends. What's, what's the big deal? <clears throat> we didn't know any different. Fess Parker, um, Fess Parker was a family friend. And up until just about seven, eight years ago, I would still go up and uh, meet him at his uh, winery. I love and, Fess uh, Parker. That's a great winery, by the way. It's it's an amazing winery. I love it up there. There's some great uh, vineyards right here in the Central Coast, some of the best in the world. Yeah, I've been. Um, you know, that's so interesting because my, my husband's an actor and he's just grown up in the business. And um, when you live here, and we know a lot of people in the business, it's true. It's like people are just people. And so if you don't really, if you're not affected by living outside, um, it's just like, somebody's dad's a lawyer, right? You just don't, it's not even really something you think about. But then when you, as you age or you get older you, and people go, wow, that's so cool. It is kind of cool to think this is part of history. I mean, John Wayne, my gosh, right? He's amazing, man. So you know what was really fun? In the summer times, we would get to go to work with my dad. He'd drop us off at the gate, the front gate, and say, be here at five o'clock and I'll pick you up. And we had full run of the studios back then. <clears throat> now you can't get anywhere near the studios. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, I, to go off a teeny bit, I just watched the most amazing documentary about Val Kilmer. And it reminded me a little bit of like you because he grew up in Chatsworth. And um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary or if you knew that family, because I, from what I understand, his dad was in the business and, um, maybe I'm wrong on that, but it was just such a, an amazing documentary. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I, I have not seen it. I'll, I'll have to look up that one. <clears throat> Excuse me. We had a lot of friends uh, in the studio business. <clears throat> I'll tell you a funny story. Are you familiar with the area called Westlake Village? Yes, I am. So my dad was a dreamer and, and he loved, you know, coming up with ideas. So he came home one day and he, he told my mom, uh, there were six of us kids in the family. He told my mom at dinner, hey, there's a bunch of us guys that want to build a lake out in um, out uh, west of here. And she goes, oh, stop all the foolishness. Just go back to work. Get your check. You got six kids to take care of. So there were like 15 uh, studio guys originally because that's where they went to shoot off, um, uh, shoot all their uh, Western movies, Paramount Ranch and Cornell Corners and everything. And 14 moved forward and built this phony lake. And that's Westlake now. And my dad was on the bottom floor of that. And my mom said, oh, just get back to work. Don't don't talk about foolishness. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. So for my listeners that aren't from here, Westlake is it's very famous. It's it's way out. Um, we talked about this before. D, uh, Los Angeles kind of, is kind of spread out. Like I'm from Washington, D.C. I say that even though I didn't grow up in D.C., I grew up in Potomac, Maryland. It's very similar. It's kind of like spread out that like where things are all over the place. Like there's the Valley, there's the South Bay, there's Orange County, um, downtown LA. Westlake is now pretty famous. Like a lot of people, there's the Four Seasons at Westlake. Am I wrong? No. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It's beautiful. I right. never knew. And I'm embarrassed to admit that that was man-made. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's a blonde moment for you right there, John. No, it's a it's a beautiful place. Half of it is in Ventura County and half of it is in L.A. County. It literally straddles the county line right there. That's amazing. OK, so it sounds like you had a pretty cool 
upbringing. Happy? Was it happy? I mean, six it, kids, that's a lot. It was. My, um, you know, it was, it was pretty fast starting. My oldest sister is five years older than I am. And then I had a brother that was 14 months older than me. And then um, I have a twin sister. And then my little sisters are twins also. My mom had two sets of twins. Oh, my gosh. If you've ever read the uh, the book, uh, The Birth Order by Norman, uh, Norman, I can't think of his last name right now. He, he wrote the book on birth, birth order. And it's always interesting to learn if you're first, second, middle, or what have you. And peop- I always tell people I'm a middle child. And they say, well, what do you mean a middle? Well, I have two below me and two above me and one beside me. That's really interesting that you're from, are they, are you two sets of fraternal twins or? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I have, I have a twin sister and then my little sisters are fraternal also. And uh, so we, we, we had a pretty large family and um, lively all the time. And I used to kid, I tease my little sisters just profusely and I could do it because they were my sisters, but don't anybody else try to abuse my sisters because I'll take you down. Yeah, that's how it is in a family, right? Um, And so, and so you like, it sounds like it was a happy upbringing. And then what, where'd you end up going to high school, college, all Um, of that? Taft High School. um, Okay. And I'm going to date myself. I went to SFBSC and that stands for San Fernando Valley Community College, which now is Northridge, Cal State Northridge. So I started there as a community college, and I ended there when it became Cal State University Northridge. Okay. Well, that, I mean, your whole like upbringing up until the point of college, it all seems like you had a pretty like interesting, like stable life, correct? It, um, it was. You know, there's some ups and downs, but we're a very tight family. And um, speaking of Caroline and Jeff, Jeff's mom is my first cousin. And uh, my cousins lived across the street from us in Woodland Hills. So we got to interact with them all the time. And our house was where Thanksgiving was, Christmas was. And because we had such a large family, we didn't go on vacations. We only, I only lived in three houses. And the, the number two and number three house that we moved into, the first thing they did was put a pool in. And they said, there's your vacation. Go out and enjoy it. So we grew up in the pool. So our house was the meeting point. Everyone came over for summers and barbecues and swimming. And it, it was it was a very fun upbringing. I'm jealous of that. I actually have kind of a similar, I come from a pretty big, I'm one of five, one past, but one of four now. And I have my mom's side, like a ton of cousins and we all grew up together, but we didn't grow up close to each other, but we would always spend the holidays together. And I'm always so kind of jealous, especially living out in LA, my whole family is back East. It, it's, it's such a special thing to be close to your immediate family because they, you know, they know you, that's who you are. That's part of who, what you are, correct? Um, I, yes, very much. Um, and what, what was interesting growing up, we all gravitated uh, towards my mom's side of the family. My mom had a brother and a sister, and everyone was very, very tight and close. My dad's side of the family was humongous. Um, his grandparents came over uh, from Germany in 1884, and I remember in, in 
1984, I took my dad and my oldest son back to a 100-year family reunion. There were 1,100 stencils in Wells, Minnesota at this reunion. The Catholic Church could only hold 900. And because my dad was the third oldest at the reunion, we got to sit in the, in the second uh, pew. And I told my son, who was only, um, he was only nine years old, I said, Marty, turn around and look. You see all those people? He goes, yeah. And I said, they're all your family. And he went, oh my gosh. That's incredible. Just to be able to like connect like that. Nobody, that's really incredible and rare. Super it, cool. So tell me like what, once you started, like not to go into like the dark side of life, but that's kind of, I know that you're, you now will get into what you're doing now, but um, when did you start to like have some issues? I read in your biography about um, running into like drug addiction and some of the things that you ran into. When did you start to have some problems with that? Well, it actually goes back to uh, junior high and high school, quite honestly. Um, and because our family was so large and things weren't talked about in families back then, right? M my oldest sister um, today is a paranoid schizophrenic and she's homeless again after we got her into the system for almost 17 years. But we didn't see any of that until probably she was in her early 30s. And now hindsight, having been in the field, for this long, I, I could pen it down when she was 15, 16, 17, etc. Uh, so I started, you know, really seeing mental health issues back in those days. Um, and then it just took a different direction. After I, um, after I graduated high school, Vietnam was uh, happening and the draft was going on. And I had to make a decision whether I wanted to be drafted, go to Canada or join the military so I could choose what I wanted to do. And ultimately, I ended up interviewing all the different military branches and, and wanted to be an Air Force pilot, but uh, my right eye wasn't perfect. It was 2025, you couldn't have corrective lenses. So I ended up um, with the Naval Air and I was an uh, uh, intelligence officer in the Naval Air for six years. And that's really where a lot of the trauma began mm -hmm. was during Vietnam and um, because I was um, an intelligence officer, we, I was stationed at Fort Island, Hawaii, which is the Central Intelligence Pacific Fleet. And uh, we were the, the, the planners of all the bombing missions, and we would send them out um, bombing everything. And then we would do more photography and find out, well, <clears throat> were we successful? And uh, where my initial traumas came from is... Uh, we, we were bombing all the villages incorrectly and wiping out two to 3,000 people at a time uh, because we missed our targets and so forth. So it was pretty traumatic. And I remember going to my commanding officer one time and I said, you know, commander such and such, um, we're, we're having a real rough time because we're seeing all the damage that we're doing to this country and villages and innocent people. And, you know, we, we need some help. Nobody called it PTSD back then. And he said, you're here to do a job, just shut up, get back to work. So we kept, um, we kept on working and, and doing all that. Finally, uh, he said, I'm, I, I don't want you in my uh, squadron anymore. We're sending you uh, somewhere else. I went, oh my gosh, I'm going on a boat. I, I just know it. Instead, they sent me over to Central Intelligence Mediterranean Fleet. I was uh, stationed at Rota, Spain, watching over all of our enemies back, 
back in the uh, early 70s. I mean, wow. I mean, no wonder. I mean, seriously, I, I mean, in recent news, just watching what's happening in Afghanistan maybe is triggering for you. Um, I know that our veterans, so many, um, my husband's, my father-in-law is actually a Vietnam veteran. And to this day, you know, he has a hard time with certain things. He, you know, it's, it's so sad and thank God, cause I know you're, you're in mental health now that, and I talk about this a lot. Um, if you had a, uh, a broken arm, right. I say this almost every episode or a lot of them. So I'm sorry to my audience, but if you had a broken arm, you put a cast on your arm. Right. The thing is, is that our brains and are, are such a huge organ and like basically the biggest part of our body. And we just, we don't take care of our brains a lot of times. Like if your sister has schizophrenia, that's, that's a valid thing that she could just be put on medication for. But it's like, nobody wanted to address these issues. And thank God, like if there's one thing we do have, mental health is really coming to the forefront right now. I don't know if it's just more people wanting to talk about things because of COVID, just people being like more open as human beings and saying enough is enough. But the trauma and the PTSD that you must have seen doing that, going through that and not necessarily being on the side of being in Vietnam, but it's almost harder knowing that you were on your end and just doing that and it being a job. I can't even imagine what that was like. It was pretty horrific. That was one of the worst wars. Well, all wars are, are terrible, but that was seriously one of the worst wars. We we had no business being over there. I'm not trying to make this political. And, you know, all the politicians were lying about it when we were over there, bombing the heck out of Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, and these other countries. And everyone was saying, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Well, I had pretty high security clearance, so I couldn't talk about it. But we were doing that. And, and you just, you felt like, and and I was a pallbearer for six of my uh, classmates because they died over in Vietnam. So it's it's pretty horrific. And to see what's going on with Afghanistan and the other hotspots around the world, it's it it is triggering. It really is. But uh, how old I, were you, John, when you were doing that? That's another thing that I want to ask. Yeah, I, I was one of those who accelerated, and um, I um, I graduated high school at seventeen. So I had to have my parents sign me in. So I I went in before I was 18. And a funny story, um, again, I chose to go in because I wanted to pick my branch and and what I was going to do. And uh, during boot camp, I was called before my commanding officer. And he says, well, it looks like we're going to have to put you in in, uh, uh, the brig and we'll probably have to ship you out somewhere. Um, uh, And I said, why? What's going on? I was a platoon leader. I was, you know, first my class, all that kind of stuff. He said, you didn't register for the draft. I said, I'm in the military. You still have to register. So he said, get over to the office right now. So I had to take a half a day out of boot camp to go register for the draft. I'm going, what the heck? So I was pretty young. But um, yeah, I was I was young. I was in the um, uh, probably about four months before I turned 18. I was already in the military. Okay. So seeing that stuff, I, I, ta- I have talked about this and I know you know this. So your brain isn't fully, fully even formed until you're 25 years old. So 
the amount of PTSD that people carry with them. I talk about it a lot just from being, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD stemming from my childhood. Um, that stuff you bring into your adulthood. And unless you, you get real therapy, real help, it's always going to follow you. It's like a dark shadow, right? I know. Tell me now not to skip ahead, but do you mind kind of talking about what you do now? But I want to go backwards as well and kind of talk about it, but just so my audience knows what you're doing now. So I've, I've been blessed in my career. I've spent 40 years working in healthcare. Uh, the first 11 years, I, I was manufacturing durable medical equipment, walkers, crutches, canes, wheelchairs, those kinds of things. And uh, that's what really kicked me into my first international career. Fast forward, after being in that for 11 years and traveling uh, to 40, 50 countries doing uh, business development, um, I was traveling so much and my, my biological clock did not know where I was. And I was a single father raising my son and I was traveling back and forth to Europe, back to Asia and this and that. And um, I found myself, the only way I could cope was that I would smoke marijuana at night. That would bring me down. And during the day to keep up, because you have to keep up with it as a workaholic, um, I was using cocaine seven days a week. And after about three years of that profuse abuse, um, I, I woke up, I was smoking two and a half packs of cigarettes a day, a pack of marijuana a day, and cocaine seven days a week. And I woke up one morning uh, really stressed out, and I felt some pain in my chest, and I thought, oh my gosh, what is it? So I took a hit of my cigarette, it hurt more, I put it down. So I started driving to work, and I had to turn around um, and drove myself to the emergency room at 6.30 in the morning on February uh, February 23rd, 1981, February 23rd, 1981. And I'm, um, I came screeching in through my car in park and rolled out and was on the ground. And I heard somebody yelling, get a stretcher, get a stretcher, get a stretcher. So they came and picked me up and I'm in the emergency room staring up at the big white lights and they're going, we're losing him, we're losing him. Nitro's not working. Um, we're gonna lose him, we're gonna lose him. And all I'm thinking is, oh my gosh, what, what's going to happen with me? What's going to happen with my son? I'm sitting here dying. And I thought it was a heart attack. Uh, my dad died of a heart attack. And uh, they finally said, get a portable x-ray in here. They did. They said, okay, sir, you're going to feel a little pinch and a little pressure. And they came and they cut me right here. They took this 18-inch uh, uh, stainless steel spike and drove it in me and left a plastic tube. My, my lung had collapsed. I didn't have a heart attack, and uh, the doctor came in and said, so what's going on? Uh, your, your lung collapsed. What's going on in your life? And I share a little bit. He says, you're a lucky person that your heart was stronger and you had a blemish on your, on your lung, and that's what blew out. He said, let's talk about what's going on in your life. So I spilled my guts to him right then in the hospital. A good friend of mine that I worked with came in and prayed with me. And that's the day I quit smoking cigarettes, marijuana, cocaine. So it's been just over 40 years now that I, I don't smoke and I don't use any drugs at all. So my question is, because I know we kind of skipped ahead because I wanted to kind of find out like the root of the story and figure out like what you're doing now. But 1981, you were very young. So you had 
had you been married and you were divorced and had, you said you have one son? Yeah, I had, um, so I was 30 years old. Okay. Uh, when that happened. And, uh, well, I was 29 years, 11 months old when that happened. And so that was a, a very important changing uh, point in my life. And, and I sat down and, well, I was in the hospital for three and a half weeks and I was rehabbing at home for about three months. And it gave me a lot of time to really think about what am I doing in life? What do I want out of life? What's important, et cetera. So after my first international career of traveling, you know, everywhere, um, I made a decision that I, I can't be traveling right now. I need to come back home, be a good father, raise my son, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, what, what I learned, because I was working with these major rehab centers, physical and occupational rehab centers around the world, what I noticed were these spinal cord injuries. The average was a 27-year-old spinal cord injury, quadriplegic, et cetera, and, and their life was over. They went into these rehab centers, and, and they had no hope. They couldn't walk. They couldn't do any of that. And what, what I noticed, they spent a four, uh, four months in a physical rehab, and then they all went to psychiatric facilities because their brain was all messed up, that life had to, you know, major depression, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. So it got me interested in, in the field of psychiatry. So I was living in Thousand Oaks, California, not far from Westlake, and um, beautiful little community. And I noticed that there was going to be an open house on a Saturday. The Laker girls were going to be there, and there were going to be... <laughs> Free hot dogs yeah. at this new hospital. And I said, well, who's this new hospital? I had to go down and check it out. So I met with some of the staff there and watched the Laker girls and ate some hot dogs. And, and finally, the CEO came up to me. He says, uh, my HR person said that you're looking for a job. I said, well, I didn't tell her I'm looking for a job. Well, what do you do? I'm in between contracts. That means you're unemployed. I said, yeah, I'm unemployed. He goes, do you want to work for me? I said, doing what? Filling up that hospital. Well, how do you do that? He says, you'll figure it out. It's all about relationships. So I went to work for this place. It was called Charter Medical Corporation, Charter Hospital Thousand Oaks. And within six months, I had that hospital filled up. So they gave me nine more. So I had responsibility with my senior management team. We were managing uh, 10 psychiatric hospitals. So I really learned a lot about uh, mental health, psychiatry, and we all had detox programs and adolescent programs and children's programs. So it really gave me a, a good look at what's going on in this world with regard to mental health, psychiatric conditions, et cetera, et cetera, and substance use disorder. So um, we didn't need all those hospitals anymore. Um, well, their competitor hired me, and then I was managing 27 hospitals. Um, and then I left there because we didn't need um, that many hospitals anymore. And ever since, I've been a serial entrepreneur, and I've been opening up businesses, uh, specialty niche kind of businesses. Um, I opened up a, uh, with my partner, we opened up an international psychiatric services com company. We took care of international employees living and working in foreign countries. We we're taking care of about 75,000 people living and working in 50 countries. And we traveled to all those countries. So that was a real eye opener. That was a unique business. We operated that for about 13 years and spun it off. And then um, I was one of four partners uh, in the largest behavioral group practice in LA and Ventura County. We built that up. We were responsible for 400,000 um, uh, patients and members. Um, I did that. And I started, um, uh, built a really successful uh, trauma program. It was called codependency back then, but what we actually were doing was we specialized in codependency, trauma, and process addictions. Nobody knew what a process addiction was. We coined that phrase back in 2008. 
process addiction is external dependencies, workaholism, sex, love, relationship. Eating disorder is a process addiction, but it's the only one you actually ingest. But you're not treating the food, you're treating, you know, the underlying traumas and everything. So I've just, I've had a very, very blessed um, uh, business. And out of those have, have come some really unique things. Um, we started. It sounds like, sorry to interrupt you, but it's such a, it's so fascinating to me that just to like go back a teeny bit with the, with the cocaine addiction and all of the addiction stuff. And just, you know, like, I don't know if you're spiritual, but I talk about this a lot on my podcast. Are you spiritual? Yes, I am. Okay. So did you grow, you said you were Catholic. Are you still Catholic, the practicing Catholic? Are you more just like Christian? Uh, I'm a recovering Catholic, as I <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just, I can, I am a Catholic still, um, but I take bits and pieces. I still go to church. Um, I haven't been going lately because I'm in a different, a little bit of a different place that I'm trying to figure out right now. But um, what I was going to say is, I, I have to believe that spirituality guided you through a lot of these things that you've done in your life. And it's no wonder that you were kind of like, it sounds like you were kind of like running from stuff. So, so bogged down, so busy traveling, like you were took up the cocaine to try and like hide or run away from something. And then just going into getting into addiction and then just really turning your life around to try and, yeah, you were, it was a business for you, but helping other people sounds like it's your passion. And that's it's, my passion too. And I think that mental health and getting people help or talking to people about it is so, so, so important. And I think that um, God kind of picks people or picks you in your life and kind of gives you signs or tests that you have to go through in your life and and it, they're not always easy right i mean your your test of just being in the position that you were during vietnam is just the saddest most horrible thing i can even think of but you did it and it must have affected you so deeply that that's why you kind of turned to the drug addiction correct yes i uh, it was and my uh, my passion in life is helping others basically and i've been on that you know, route, even, even with the medical equipment and so forth, it was still helping people. We help people walk. We help little kids with these little two-year-old uh, kids with walkers and everything. I mean, it just tears your heart up. But yeah, my passion is to help people. I think that's what my calling is. And all the programs that I've designed and developed with great clinical people, they're biopsychosocial, spiritual. And I'm not talking religion. I'm talking spirituality. And uh, all the programs that I've been involved with, spirituality is the glue that brings everything together. Do you believe in signs? I always ask this. Mm-hmm, I do. Do you have you had signs throughout your life, throughout like the most tumultuous things that you've gone through? That you know that maybe God's with you, or you know, I know you said you lost your, you've lost your dad. Um, do you believe? Like, what are some of your signs? Well. You know, it's pure and simple. Now I understand it a lot better. We we don't gain wisdom until we've grown through a lot of that. And that's what wisdom is all about. But I think there's been a couple of signs. Uh, The one where I almost died, uh, that was clearly a sign. 
that that was the the day that I had that happen to me. That's the day I accepted the Lord uh, in a different way than uh, you know my Catholic upbringing, and um, and then you know the family's gone through a lot. One of my little sister twins died almost 16 years ago at 42 years of, of age of a very rare medullary thyroid cancer. So that was such a loss. And she was one of the most beautiful people walked this earth. I mean, she loved everything. She helped everybody. And you just, sometimes you get angry. God, why did you let this happen? Why, why, why? And we, you know, we understand it later, but, and then my brother died of pancreatic cancer about 12 years ago as well. And uh, so had, had significant loss in the family um, and lost my mom, lost my uncle, lost my brother. I've, in essence, have lost my oldest sister because she she thinks I'm Satan after me helping her for almost 20 years. Now uh, she won't take her medication. So she believes I'm Satan and just doesn't want anything to do with me or the family. So I, I think one of the things that it is every day when I wake up, we call it just show up and be present. And if you're present, the, the Lord will bring you what you need. The, the Lord will, and, and I, this is not a spiritual, I'm not trying to bring anyone to the Lord right now, but it's so true. If you listen to your spirituality, it's amazing what can happen. I agree. So, I think that, um, I think that, and not every one of my listeners might be spiritual and I'm not trying to push it on anybody, but for me, it's just been something that has gotten me through my darkest times in the past couple of years. And, um, and I think it's, everybody has something that works for them. I just, for me, it's part of who I am. And so I always like to ask my guests about what they believe and what their spirituality is. And if they believe in signs, because I just have to believe that when, you know, we go through like so much loss, like you've been through, or I've been through, um, it, there has to be a reason for all of it. And all of the trauma that you've gone through and then turning your life around and helping people. Um, and I'm so sorry to hear about your sister because that is, I I'm very passionate obviously about mental health as well. And I just think in, in Los Angeles, like we touched on in the beginning, we have such a huge problem with homelessness and, and the majority of these people are, um, are drug addicts or they have mental health issues. And I get really upset. And I know a lot of people do because it's like, well, what do we do with them? Where are they supposed to go? Are we going to like bus them somewhere? Well, they're not going to get on that bus. So how, how do you feel about that? And, and I, again, I know that it can be a political issue, but for me, it's not a political issue. It's a humanity issue. And it's about loving and, and trying to help other people. And I think that that's what we should be about as humans. So how, like, can you touch on that for me? Well, uh, the homelessness problem in the United States is just, it's horrific. And mm -hmm. it's only growing. It's only getting worse. Uh, there's got to be better answers. And I hope they'll appropriate more money for it. Um, and, and a lot of the homeless are veterans. I mean, mm -hmm. many people coming back from wars end up you know, because of their PTSD and so forth, they can't function any longer or they are schizophrenic, et cetera, et cetera. But so um, I would say 98% of homelessness is, is all about mental health and we have to bring it more to the forefront. You know, there's three actions to, to address um, on a soapbox. And the first thing you have to do is raise the awareness. What is the problem? Raise the awareness at the level where they'll, uh, 
they'll be able to write public policy. Once you get public policy written, now you can go say, okay, how much money do we need to address this public policy that we've raised awareness for? Um, so I'm gonna go off on a tangent a little bit because it's, it's, it takes it back to the military and veterans. When I was uh, running this program uh, doing codependency trauma and process addictions, uh, it was a nonprofit and it was running back in Kentucky. I went back and took it over. It was a small nonprofit. We grew it back there, scaled it to Santa Barbara. And um, so I was raising uh, charitable donations to expand it and so forth. And um, one of my chief donors, she and her husband uh, go back to their home on Long Island and they're gone usually for six to eight weeks. And she said, John, I'm going to be just tied up for the next six to eight weeks. Don't call me. Leave me alone unless you really need me. So I was approached by two trauma therapists, specialists. They came up and they looked at the property in Santa Barbara and we had seven houses on it. One we weren't really using. They said, we'd like to have you consider letting us use this house to do some trauma work. And I said, well, what's that all about? They said, well, here's a, here's a DVD, take it home and watch it and let's meet again. So I hadn't watched it that morning. I was supposed to meet with them, popped it in my DVD player, grabbed my cup of coffee and opened it up and it said, special thanks to, I'll just call her Mary right now, special thanks to Mary. And I'm staring at this and this is my chief donor and she was the one who funded this DVD. And um, it's called The Invisible War. And it, it unleashed on average 26,000 military sexual traumas every year for the last 50 years. And The Invisible War is all about military sexual trauma. So I, I texted her back in Long Island. I said, what do you know about this? She goes, what do you know about this? I said, I'm watching the DVD. They, they want to use part of the property to build a trauma program specifically for military sexual trauma. She goes, you're in charge. Make it happen. So we did. We, we brought and brought some of the most talented trauma experts, my chief clinical officer, my two met, uh, chief or my uh, clinical directors, and we built this trauma program. It was a two-week intensive program. We partnered with Stanford, and, and we uh, ran 48 patients through it, six each two weeks, uh, a cohort of six. And we did uh, four cohorts, no, six cohorts of six and two uh, for female, and then two cohorts of six for male, and we studied it. That program is still running back in Virginia today, and it's treating military sexual trauma. So you have to raise the awareness. You got to bring the money and and help these people. So um, I know what a lot is the about outcome with the? I mean, if it's still running, it's obviously very successful. But what were you seeing with the outcome of those patients that were coming through long term? Beautiful long term uh, recovery, um, and it it does take long term. You can't do it in two weeks. The program's actually been extended, it's a six week program. Now, my trauma program uh, ran as much as 12 weeks and um, we would get lots of people coming into the program that 12 weeks wasn't even enough. So you just kind of keep helping them, but you do interventions, you treat the trauma, you treat the family, you treat the spouse. And it's not just about the addicted person, the identified patient, it's about the codependent spouse as well, because codependency kills more people than drugs and alcohol combined. Codependency is very, very troubling, and not many people really understand what it is, but it's a very, very uh, difficult thing to treat. Wow. I mean, you're my idol. <laughs> I could seriously like sit with you all day because I find 
I, I just, everything you say that you've done is just so inspirational to me and I love it. Um, thank you for, for doing all of the things that you've done. I just, I, I wish that there was not, I mean, I just feel like right now there, there's like no, no answer for what's happening, except like you said, to put money into it and, and having us, your own sibling that has schizophrenia and is homeless and won't take their medication. It's like, I I've talked to people before that have experienced that. And it's, when you're the relative or sibling, it's like kind of having a sibling or a parent that's an, an addict, you know, like you, there's, you get to a certain point and there's nothing you can do anymore. No, and it's, it's, uh, it's genetic also. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned names, but my nephew's 20 year old son now also is schizophrenic and he's having a very, very rough time right now. Won't, won't accept the fact, won't take his medications and, in and out of hospitals, et cetera. So it's rampant. And, you know, every family has their own stories. I mean, this is not isolated. It, mental health does not discriminate. It attacks anybody and everybody in, in various ways. So it's, uh, especially children, uh, I've, I've developed some really strong um, adolescent and children programs as well. I'm, I'm a consultant right now. I'm semi-retired. I don't work 80 hours a week anymore. I'm only working about 20 to 30 hours a week. That's still a lot, John. 20 to 30 hours is a lot. Well, as we say in this field, um, we we will die in the chair helping people, right? So um, I've been doing interventions with families for 30 years. I've never charged for an intervention. I I love working with families, helping them get to the program that would meet their needs. And I'm doing a lot of work with adolescents and families right now as one of my consulting uh, gigs as well. I, I have, I understand the schizophrenia because I've, I do know, I know somebody that it, from what I understand, it develops usually when you're in your twenties and yep. then that it, it gets worse unless you get on some sort of medication. The good news is, um, I feel like, like I said earlier, we're really starting to grow our minds and, and kind of be more accepting of people that need help for some sort of mental illness or uh, need to be put on medication. That's kind of why I even started this podcast because I'm very open about the fact that I suffer from depression and anxiety and I'm on medication. Um, So I just, I'm so grateful to you for doing this. Um, So you're, you are where you are now. You're, you're by uh, the marina. What are your, what's, what are some of the things that you would still like to do when you're on this planet? So, um, I have bucket lists and I'm starting to tick them off. Um, when when I was traveling abroad, I always had some hobbies to do on the weekends because my, the president of the company said, you don't work on weekends. That's your time. You're on these trips for two to three weeks at a time. So I picked up some hobbies and one of them was lighthouses. Another one was zoos. Another one was botanical gardens. And another one was the turnstiles, where the, the trains in Europe would go into a small little town or community, and they couldn't turn around. So that you put the engine on a turnstile and turn it like that, then it headed out the other way. So lighthouses were a real passion of mine. I just got back uh, with my 17-and-a-half-year-old. He calls me Papa, but he's, he's my niece's son, but I've helped him tremendously. Uh, over the last 17 years, and he went just successfully got back from a two-year 
uh, therapeutic boarding school, and he's just amazing right now. So to recognize that, he and I took a three-week trip. We started in Ventura, drove all the way up the coast to Whidbey Island, and visited 26 lighthouses. And our, on our way back, we went to Zion National Park, spent two days there, and then two days with my twin sister in St. George and came back. So that was a huge bucket list. I thought this was going to be a life-changing event for him. Forget him. It was a life-changing event for me. <laughs> we had the best time. Uh, but the, So uh, my oldest son and his wife and my three grandkids moved to New Zealand about five and a half years ago. They're applying for permanent residency. I go back and forth visiting with them and everything. And um, so I've been meeting with a lot of the healthcare professionals over there and digging into what's going on. It's very interesting. You know, it's it's government provided uh, healthcare and so forth, but they're broken up into these districts. And what I learned in the last five and a half years is what they lack um, mostly are behavioral services for children, adolescents, and families. So I've been talking it up. Now the um, one of the districts wants to bring me over there for two to three years, part you know, just as a consultant and bring teams over, and we're going to uh, start developing uh, behavioral services for children, adolescents, and families over in in New Zealand. As That's soon as amazing. I get that, it's going to be a lot of fun. I've never wow. been to New Zealand, but I've always wanted to go. And I do think, and I I know that you must agree about, on this, since because of what you're doing, but. Um, Trauma starts a lot, a lot of times for people at very young ages. I experienced my own trauma when I lost my sister and she died in front of me when I was two. Um, and, you, and I've talked about it before. I didn't realize at the time because I don't remember it, but um, she, she died in her crib. My mom took her out uh, went and found her, sorry. And then the paramedics came in and I just was like, didn't know what was going on. I was so young, which triggered my lifelong battle with, you know, depression and severe anxiety in the past few years. And so I, I love when I hear that people are, are targeting young people, because if we target our youth and our young people, we can try and help them overcome long-term effects, like, you know, going into their thirties and forties or fifties and, and upwards and, and needing help. So I think it probably starts with our youth, right? It does. Uh, I think we recognize that more now than ever before. Uh, even with the pandemic, the amount of adolescents, uh, pre-teens and teens that are experiencing anxiety, depression at new heights. It's unbelievable. They say mental health has grown 170% in the last 18 months. There's not enough treatment programs out there. Everyone has a wait list and the, you know, the families are uh, just going chaotic right now. The kids are going chaotic and it's younger kids. It used to be kids might be smoking you know, marijuana at 16 or 17. We have kids that are uh, dabbling with synthetic drugs as young as seven, eight, and nine years old right now. It's well, it's the it's the fentanyl. I mean, I know that this is happening it, where I live um, at the in the beach community. We've had it's it's known that there's been numerous deaths of teenagers tr uh, ex using drugs and that they're laced with the fentanyl, like you said. So, um, I don't know what I mean. I'm curious to know 
what you think about that. Do you think that it has to do with just so much? Like we're as a society, we have so much social media. We have our kids have access to everything. I have an 11 year old and I worry about her because I think that she is in her, was in her room, you know, for the past year with COVID. And I worry about her struggling with depression. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so one of my most recent uh, soapboxes has been uh, all about the opioid epidemic. And I started uh, working in that area about six, seven years ago. And we actually built a program that was treating people, uh, work comp patients, uh, opiate addiction, et cetera, et cetera. So the opioid epidemic is, is very much alive. This is one of the uh, guys that helped write this book, and, and he gives me a lot of credit and our, our program. What is the so, book called? I, I couldn't see it, just so we can say what it is. The United States of Opioids, Liberating a Nation in Pain by Harry Nelson. Okay. It's an amazing book. Um, Harry's a good friend of mine. He has a, a law practice with a firm with about 30, 35 people in it, all healthcare related. And so... I've been on the circuit for about the last five, six years doing national talks on opioids and so forth. And um, you, you're right, the, the, the newest opioid problem is the fentanyl. And what's happening is they're lacing all of these synthetic drugs with fentanyl and kids are just dying immediately. It's so bad what's going on out there right now. The synthetic drugs are 700 times more powerful than any of the most powerful cannabis that you can get your hands on. And these kids, that they just finished a 12-year study. Uh, these three doctors, psychiatrists, addictionologists, uh, just finished a 12-year study basically showing that kids as young as nine, as old as 20, after 12 years of using synthetic drugs, it, it is causing irreversible schizophrenia. Irreversible schizophrenia. So it's a big problem. Um, I'm helping another pro another nonprofit startup right now, uh, looking at the opioid uh, epidemic and so forth. And people, it's it's been put to the side because of COVID. Well, it doesn't need to be put to the side. What it needs to be is more highlighted because the COVID is exacerbating the opiate addiction and epidemic more than ever before. So it's just being overshadowed, but the opioid epidemic is huge. Um, heroin is huge. Fentanyl, there's a new one that just came down from Canada a couple months ago. It's called uh, Purple Dope, and it's a new uh, strain of synthetic with fentanyl and heroin in it. It's There's more stuff being developed on a, on a daily basis right now. It's, it's scary. Is, is there anything that, that like, my listeners or I can do as a parent to, mm. can you give me some tips? And I'm sorry, it kind of sh shifted into like these questions, but I think it's so important because a lot of my listeners are moms and, you know, it's, I don't know the answers of what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's, I'm scared. I mean, my daughter's 11. I, I, I want to sure. be prepared for this stuff. Megan, I have the book for you. Okay. Tell me and, and my listeners. Okay. Have you ever heard of this book, Dreamland? Dreamland by Sam uh, Canonis. And Sam wrote this book. It's all about black tar heroin, the most profitable business that started in 1984 in the San Fernando Valley. And now it's 
black tar heroin being brought into this country and sold on the streets. And when I talked to Sam, I met him at a conference. When I talked to him about it, I said, look, I've read your book. It's amazing. However, you, you're missing the boat on something. This, it's, Look how thick it is. I mean, it's a huge book, and it's, it's incredible. It should be mandatory for all college students to read this book. But I, he says, well, what do you mean I'm missing the boat? I said, you have to dumb it down a little bit. You have to make it relatable for the parents to be able to read it with their 11-year-old daughters. So you have to make it smaller and more informative. What did he do? He wrote it. Dreamland, and it's called um, A Young Adult Adaptation, Dreamland. And it's for parents to read with your children. Okay, this is this is amazing. I mean, I think this is so important for everybody to hear. And by the way, I will have all of these books in my show notes and we'll post them on social media as well. Because I think that, John, I literally would like you to come back on again. I want to do a part two because this is really important information that I think of as parents, you know, it's scary. It's a terrifying world right now to have a preteen or almost teenager. And they don't have the same struggles that we had. I mean, for me growing up back East, what there was like marijuana and like beer and Zima. When I was in college, I drank that gross drink Zima that tasted like Sprite. But now look at what they have to go through. And even like, you know, when I was young working in the Hollywood nightclubs, yeah, there was like cocaine and all of that stuff, but it wasn't like it is now. And their young minds, you know, if one friend says, do this, I know, I remember me, you know, somebody's like, oh, do you, you want to fit in? They're still like wanting to be like everybody else. And just with the social media, it's a whole separate episode. So I would really, really like for you to come back on if you don't mind and do a part two. I, I would love to, and I, um, maybe offline I could introduce you to some of these people. I'd love. Oh that. my gosh, I would love it. I would love to interview the author of Dreamland if you're okay with it. Oh, absolutely. Or introducing me because this is something I'm really passionate about. I'm very passionate, obviously, about mental health and and um, and my own story, getting it out there. So maybe I can help somebody else or other people, just like you want to do. It's my mission in life, just like it's your mission in life. And I am just so, so grateful. Thank you, Caroline, for introducing me. I'm going to give you another shout out to your, to your amazing, is it uncle-in-law? Like, what is the actual terminology? <laughs> uh, I think we just call, call each other cousins or cousins. Say, yeah. She's, she's like a cousin, but you know, she's become such a good friend. I yeah. love her. I love her husband, Jeff. Um, my son, I helped teach Jeff how to surf with my son back when they were uh, seven, eight years old and everything. And um, it's a wonderful story about Jeff and his sister, Ladan and their mom. And um, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So when I met Caroline, I think it's been maybe about two, two and a half years ago, I just went, oh, I love this woman. You know what they say about uh, friends and family? You can pick your friends, not your family. Well, I didn't pick her. Jeff did. And now she's my friend. <laughs> she's awesome. I love her. And, um, and in closing, I just want to tell you, I genuinely mean like how grateful I am to you, um, for coming on this podcast. Uh, your story is incredible. You're so inspirational. 
I'm glad that you're only working 20 to 30 hours right now because I think you need a break. And I want you to like look out that window and appreciate the beauty of the marina. One last question. Do you still surf? I do. Not as much as I used to, uh, but I still have two surfboards. I have a long board, uh, which is nine six. um, And I had a custom made for me and I have a seven foot 10 and it was made by a, a shaper that I've gotten boards from for years. It's it's a, a Kauai model. Um, it's He built it for me to surf over in Kauai. And uh, I don't like the waters here because they're too cold. Oh, my gosh. Too, yeah. It's too hard to put a wetsuit on. Yeah, it's the but, waters here are freezing. I don't even, just growing up back east, I'm at the Pacific Ocean. I'm like, I think I've only been in it three times. I mean, it's so cold here. Um sure. But I wanted to ask you that because I, a lot of surfers say that surfing is like their therapy. So my uh, three grandchildren, real quick, my grandson, his name is Tyler. He made the New Zealand surf team four years ago as an eight and a half year old. My gosh. He, he just uh, finished up the Billabong Grom one year series about three months ago. And out of 250 kids, he took overall first place. He's 13 now, and he took overall first place for the under 16-year-olds. And he just got uh, one of the, voted one of the uh, five best surfers of his class in New Zealand. And he's he's just doing amazing things. Kelly Slater and some of our other friends, Ricardo Christie from over there, uh, Mick Fanning from Australia. Uh, they basically said your son will or your grandson will probably be pro by the time he's 14 or 15 years old. He's oh my killing God. it. And my granddaughter, she's 15. I just got her a custom longboard. They all surf. My little one, seven years old, they all surf. And it's a beautiful family thing. It really is. It's wonderful. I, I, I'm amazed. My, my, Real quick, my daughter is surfs, my 11-year-old, and she, and my husband surfs. And I just am so jealous because I just think it's the coolest sport. And I've tried. I'm not good. I, I feel like it's something you have to learn young. But yeah. I'm always so inspired by, you know, looking out at the ocean on my walks and seeing the surfers. And a lot of times it's like a spiritual thing to them. And um, and I just love it. I love the ocean. I love I love the beach just like you. And I hope that you come back again. I think you're an amazing person. And in closing, keep living, keep praying, and keep growing. Hi, everybody. Have you heard of Instacart? If you have not heard of Instacart, I don't know where you have been living because it saved my life. I don't have to go to the grocery store. I can get my stuff delivered to my house and... If you go to judgingmegan.com forward slash Instacart, you will get $35 off of your first order if you've never ordered before. So I would say get on there right now and skip your trip to the grocery store.